0: Welcome to John and Jeff Do Less podcast, where we t- discuss economics, policy, politics, talking about people that are doing too too much and why why they, why they should be doing less. Yeah, so, Jeff, thanks for being with me.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on
0: <laughs> on our shared podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Um, so today. Uh, we are going to be discussing the Federal Reserve. What is and, it? What is it supposed to be doing? What is it doing? You know, what's the theory? Um, why, do, why do we need it? Uh, you know, what, what else do you think we'll, we'll cover today?
1: And we're going to talk about why they're doing way too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the course. Federal Reserve is king of doing too much.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that's a, that's a good point it's kind of what got us well I will speak for myself it kind of mm-hmm. is what got me really intrigued um, really sparked my passion for understanding you know global economic uh, trends and news uh, it's really just what what does the federal reserve do how much power does it have why does it do what it does? Do we need it? <laughs> All these <laughs> questions really—it um, really incited a curiosity in me, mostly because some of the answer, most of the answers I found, and that make sense to me, are not <laughs> are not the answers that are colloquially discussed by the general population.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if you feel similar. If there's a, if you have a different kind of uh, take on. What, yeah I what mean, made you interested
1: basically like what got me interested in economics was like uh you know when I started making a little bit of money and I had some money to spare people would tell me oh you gotta invest it you gotta invest it and I was like I don't know what that means so you know I did some research like I I didn't even like when I had graduated uh college I still only had a periphery understanding of what a stock was and what the stock market was. Um, And I was like, all right, so like, how does this thing work? You know, like, what? I think the main thing was like, okay, I was looking at all the different stocks I could buy and like the prices and I'm like thinking, okay, why is this a good price? You know, what does this have anything to do with this? And the more I started to understand it, and like look into things i happened upon some articles talking about how the federal reserve was going to change policy in like 2018 and that was going to have an impact on the stock market and that's se- that to me seemed like they had a lot of power and yet not that yeah, many people right. were talking about them at the time because the stock market is like this super important thing that represents many, many different people's retirements, accounts, like 401ks. Lots of people's savings are tied up with the stock market. And so it's something that's super important. And then here's this thing, the Federal Reserve, which has a huge influence on the return of the stock market. And yet it was something I understood very little about at the time.
0: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, something with such large... Uh, ramifications, such large implications as the stock market being able to be controlled, not controlled, but affected largely by um, policy of the Federal Reserve uh, it seems that that kind of flies in the face of what our Constitution stands for, that no entity, no single entity would go unchecked in a way that would allow them to maintain such large influence on something as important as the the stock market, which is kind of a, which kind of today goes as a large uh, reflection of how our economy is doing. So it's like, it's almost like begs the question, like why, why does mm-hmm. that entity have that much power? Like who gave them that power?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we can talk about um, how it started. And so basically in 1907, there was a financial crisis not as big as the Great Depression, but probably if you read about it, it's pretty similar to what we had in, you know, 2008, that type of thing. Um, essentially, what happened is you had a 50% fall in the stock market and a lot of panic. You had a bit of a run on the banks, a lot of people going bankrupt. You know, it sounds pretty familiar to if you were around during two thousand eight, uh, financial crisis. And what you're um,
0: describing is it's called the Panic of nineteen
1: oh seven. Yeah, that true. was called Fire the Fire Panic Fire. of nineteen oh seven. And uh, in response to that, people th- were enticed with the idea of having a central bank to essentially prevent like a liquidity a liquidity crisis where there's a run on the banks and people can't get their money out. And so they, people wanted the Federal Reserve, which would be able to supply banks with extra money if they needed it, if there's a run on the bank. And essentially, they would take that money back when the panic subsided. That's kind of like the idea. And um, so they passed that act in like 1913 to essentially have a central bank to control the money supply so that in times of panic, um, you could prevent um, a liquidity crisis where people can't get their money back type of thing.
0: Yeah, so, th- and so the logistics of that, um, to be clear, is the Federal Reserve, which was created as the central bank, started to issue notes called Federal Reserve notes, which if you look, I don't know if, the, well, actually, did they start issuing in 1913? Federal Reserve notes, or was that... Or they just standardized them in
1: 1913?
0: Um, Not sure. Yeah. Well, regardless, if you look in your wallet today, the important thing is you have Federal Reserve notes. I hope hope you have Federal Reserve notes in there, (laughs) if you um, are able to feed yourself. (laughs) I just have the Yeah, those Federal Reserve notes in your wallet or in your online bank account are um, obviously issued by the Federal Reserve, the Fed, as we, as we call it, um, and their dollars. That's what the dollar is. It's, it's a note issued by the Federal Reserve, redeemable for... <laughs> <laughs> redeemable for... Well, at the, time,
1: <laughs> at the time, gold.
0: At the time, gold, in 1913. Yeah. So... Which is actually a great deal. Instead of carrying around wheelbarrows full of gold to go buy a new Porsche, which at the time was just <laughs> an actual horse, right? You would um, <laughs> you'd be able to just carry these little notes around, right? And you don't have to, you know, save a bunch of money on wheelbarrow costs,
1: right? And so essentially, what the Federal Reserve did was it had a Just pile of gold that it sat on. And this was like you can think of this like a water tower, right? So if everyone turns their shower on at the same time, uh then you need like an excess of pressure to get that water pushed through. So that's like what a water tower does. And so what the Federal Reserve was, it was just a hub of all this gold, because every dollar was backed by gold. And so it was just like a hub where they could push out gold if there was like a run on the banks.
0: Right. Um, and the gold standard, uh, w- what that means is that every dollar, uh, like physically, if I took a dollar back to the federal reserve and I handed them a dollar, the dollar bill, they would hand me the equivalent of gold at that time. Um, so it was like the money in your pocket was representative of something. And the reason I kind of made a point to, earlier in this, you know, in, the, in this line of thinking about what are they redeemable for today, and that's actually not the case anymore. You can't take your dollar bill and get any amount of gold for that. If you take it to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will say Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that dollar is yours we can't give you anything for it
1: yeah well so i don't remember i think we'd have to look up what it used to trade for i think it was like one dollar was or it was like thirty dollars was an ounce of gold or something yeah let's see what it i was. think a
0: dollar i think a dollar like the word dollar used to mean an amount of gold. So it was like, but yeah, so, and that inflection happened in 1971, um, with the Bretton Woods system coming to an end, um, where the, basically the Federal Reserve up to that point had maintained, you know, an exchange rate of dollars for gold. After that, 1971- inflection point it was just it, it just it, it, the federal reserve said sorry <laughs> <laughs> if you before before this state if you would have brought us dollars we would have given you gold and after this date if you brought us dollars we would not we will not give you gold so they basically just said right it's now a fiat currency which is what that's what a fiat currency is
1: <laughs> yeah um in the Great Depression, they changed the exchange rate of gold. so they essentially if you think of the dollar as like a um, as like a security in a sense, right? like it's a it's a note and it's an IOU for gold, right Just in the way that like if you bought a bond, that's an IOU for dollars. So if they didn't give you your dollars, that's the same as defaulting on the bond. Well, multiple times in the U.S. history, like your dollar, which is an IOU for gold, would not get you the amount of gold you were promised. That happened multiple times in history. So people often think that the U.S. has never defaulted, but that's not really true because they've defaulted multiple times on essentially what is the dollar.
0: Mm. And then, in 1971, it was just one big default where they said no longer. If you thought right. you'd getting any gold for those, it's no longer the case. Right. Um, which they actually—it wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't like they just decided that and never had to deal with it, because mm. the dollar did actually have a inherent value in that it was the it was the reserve currency of the world so nations all over the world were using dollars as a as a reserve for trading to, de- to denominate imports and exports in order for different nations with different languages to be able to communicate and and convey you know proper exchange rates and value you know getting the correct value for goods and services across country country borders, mm-hmm. uh, the dollar was extremely instrumental in that it held the, the world reserve currency status. So converting two dollars was the easiest thing to do when you were trading with a currency that wasn't your local currency, which meant that there was actually a huge demand for dollars inherent in the world at the time. So, relinquishing the gold standard wasn't just like a, a carpet being ripped out from underneath the US population's feet. The dollar was mm-hmm. already so useful in the world and it already had value that the Federal Reserve felt justified in no longer meeting the obligations of gold backing each dollar.
1: The original gold standard was about 16 to 1. So, uh, $16 per ounce. And then in somewhere along the way, it went up to $20 an ounce. And then in 1934, during the great depression, that was when FDR revalued the dollar to 35. And the reason they're doing this right is so the government was spending money and accumulating debt, right? And in order to pay off its debt, it needed dollars, but the dollars are backed in gold. So if it didn't have the actual physical gold to pay off its debt, it had a there's a problem there, right? Because it needs actual gold to pay off its debts, because it's it's a hard ratio, right? But if you revalue that uh, dollar to represent less gold, so if you're going from gold is twenty dollars an ounce to thirty five, that's essentially a, you know, um, almost 50% reduction in the value of those dollars. So you can basically default on half your debt if you do that. So in the Great Depression, what was happening is they're spending a bunch of money on these like jobs programs and stuff to like try to get people working because there was like not a lot of work to go around and they're just trying to get out of this funk and in the process, racked up so much debt that they couldn't pay off because they didn't have the gold to. So they had to change the ratio so that they could essentially default on their debt.
0: Right. Yeah, so you mentioned the Great Depression. So we might want to, so we're discussing the history of the Federal Reserve, we might want to discuss causes of the Great Depression, which... As far as I'm concerned, um, yeah, well, actually, as far as Milton Friedman is concerned, if you ask Milton <laughs> Friedman, who people uh, widely, or reg- er, not widely regarded, maybe, some, if you ask some people who's the greatest <laughs> economist who ever lived, uh, they would say Milton Friedman. Um, and according to Milton Friedman, it, the, the Great Depression was a failure to act by the Federal Reserve. There was another, you know, similar run on the banks. People lost faith that their money, that they deposited in banks, would be there in the future. Mm-hmm. They, and so they wanted to, to, to run to, you know, essentially run, literally run to the bank and pull out whatever money they could. Um, which the Federal Reserve, as Jeff has already mentioned, is a liquidity provider in instances such as that. Um, so what the Federal Reserve could have done was to provide liquidity in that case, in the case of a bank run, and allow people to get their money out. Um, And I believe the Fed chairman at the time is quoted as saying, um, you know, so they didn't provide, they did not provide liquidity. And I believe the chairman was quoted as saying, we were waiting for something for a uh, a real matter to deal with. You know a real serious matter to deal with rather than um what we were seeing you know with what we now call as the great depression so i'm loosely quoting what the you know what the federal Reserve's stance was at that time but obviously that failure to act we all know what the this you know we all know what the, the effect was right the the great depression which is the is largely regarded as the worst crisis financial crisis in the history of the world really right
1: and so i think the legacy of that continues to shape our policy today like you can still see the scars of what happened in the federal reserve's policy today um for example the federal reserve has this policy today where they try to have, like, a 2% inflation rate every year. And, you know, a lot of people just accept that for what it is. Okay, 2% inflation a year. But if you think about what that means, that means you're losing 2% of your savings if you just put them in the bank or whatever. Like, if you just have dollars under your mattress, you're... you the dollars you earn today lose 2% of their value every year uh, because the money supply gets inflated. And so your standard of living is essentially constantly going down due to this policy. And so you might ask, why are we doing that? And the basically the reasoning is they're afraid that deflation is going to cause a spiral into a great depression. Um, and so to me though, that's a bit of a, um, correlation and not a causation, right? So we had huge amounts of deflation during the great depression. Um, and that was because you had this liquidity trap, right? Uh, or liquidity crisis, sorry. Uh, where there was a huge run on the banks. People couldn't get their money out. Uh, So the lending basically came to a halt. And so whenever the money supply is basically built on not only the amount of money that's around, but the amount of loans, right? Because that also is a form of money. And so if all the lending just stops because people are panicking, then that's a huge decrease in the money supply. And so that's very deflationary but the key there is the the end of the credit lending or the shrinking of credit or lending is what causes that deflation right it's not the other way around it's not that you know prices are going down or the money supply shrinks and then that causes lending to cease it's not the other way around and so to me this Idea that we need constant inflation to prevent deflation is kind of nonsense.
0: Yeah. So um, yeah, just to kind of reiterate a couple of the things that you touched on, that was a good uh, that was a good logical progression. Um, but you mentioned the the two percent target um, came about because in 1977. There was amendment to the Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was the was the creation of the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. and then 1977 the uh, Federal Reserve Act was amended. Um, directing the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System and the Federal Open Market Committee FOMC, which is just a meeting that the Federal Reserve Governors, our Board of Governors and chair. Um, hold to discuss policy. Um, there, the amendment was directed to directed them to maintain. I'm quoting: maintain long-run growth of monetary and credit aggregates commensurate with the economy's long-run potential to increase production, so as to promote effectively the goals of maximum, sorry, maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. So that so that's um, what has come to be known as the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve. So that you know they've been this source of you know liquidity in times of emergency, but that was the first time that they're really defined the vehicles to, to achieve this this destination that they're trying to 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 reach, which right. is promote. Um, the goal is a maximum employment. So reduce unemployment and stable prices. So reduce any kind of, you know, volatile inflation or deflation. So that was the inception of the, um, you know, kind of them employing their, their goal for, uh, reducing unemployment and reducing inflation.
1: Yeah, I think this is a key turning point in the Federal Reserve, right? And so, like, the original Federal Reserve, uh, they don't, they're not really doing much, right? In fact, they saw the Great Depression as not enough of a crisis for them to do anything, right? So, (laughs) they were, the original Federal Reserve, really, they didn't do much at all, (laughs) They really, they really took do less to heart. And so I think the the 1977 uh, change is really a key turning point in essentially what the Federal Reserve is. Okay, Because now they have this mandate, which starts to sound like central planning. And that's exactly what it is, is central planning. Is they're trying to achieve these optimum outcomes. And that's where it starts to get kind of messed up for me. Because to me it seems pretty absurd that just some team of people can figure out the optimum money supply, interest rate, yada, 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 to make sure that. The economy is just as healthy as possible right like like what 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 would make these people so hyper intelligent that they could figure out the proper interest rates and everything to set such that our economy is is as healthy as possible like that's when it starts to get a little fishy i I think
0: exactly yeah right um, yeah they're, they're trying to seek this goal of a, a healthy economy and I don't think any, anyone that's that's kind of that knows about you know what an economy is there's so many moving parts there's so many variables <laughs> there's so many people there's so many products there's so many changes every day from day to day there are you know shortages here and um, there's overcapacity in certain sectors Right? There's so many unlimited variables. There's unlimited mm-hmm. knowledge to know about an economy at any given at any given point. But starting in nineteen seventy seven, they have two variables, mm-hmm. unemployment and inflation. So those two variables, that's the measurement at which they're now they're now dictating what is success is. If they're deviating from success, they're deviating from low unemployment and from low inflation, and they're failing, so they must do in their, in their inventory of options to enact policy something to correct those two variables to, uh, to maintain, quote-unquote, a healthy economy.
1: Right, and so, and to me, the, the craziness here is, so if anyone knows some history about the USSR, uh, Stalin would ha- has these th- these things he called his five year plans, right? And essentially, what these were, were they were five year economic plans, right? And so, he would basically just pick certain uh, economic goals he wished his economy to achieve, right? And so. For the first five-year plan, you know, he I don't know the exact um, measurements, but he essentially, you know, if there wasn't enough farming, he would say, okay, we need to increase this sector by this much and this one by that much. And so he's essentially planning out all, like, these few sets of variables that he wanted to achieve. But the problem would be is that, you know, He couldn't know exactly how much, like, corn was needed and how much of this was needed and how much is that. And so there's no way to accurately predict exactly how much of each thing you need. And so you're always going to get it wrong. And he always did get it wrong. And here we are in a supposedly free economy and there's these two rather important variables, like inflation and unemployment, and we're just setting goals on them, and trying to manipulate our way to hit those goals. And that's going to have repercussions, because, you know, maybe the economy doesn't need this amount of inflation. Maybe it needs something else. You don't like. There's no way to know what's needed and what's important. And so we're just setting these goals, but not understanding any of the side effects that they have.
0: Right. The, um, the other thing I wanted to, to mention um, that you, that you touched on was how the, you, you briefly mentioned the, the 2% target for inflation Mm-hmm. and how that, that's not a, it's not a mathematical, pro, it's not a product of some mathematical, you know, long form proof of, you know, long form economical, economic theory. Mm-hmm. Um, what that is basically is, <laughs> it's just someone deciding, you know, deflation was terrible. We had deflation, we had some massive deflation in the, in the Great Depression, that was terrible. We should never see deflation again. We really should do what we can to avoid deflation, mm-hmm. right? But we also don't right. want to see massive inflation because obviously that's bad too. What Jeff was mentioning about, you know, standard of living or, you know, purchasing power eroding from inflation. So we kind of just want it in the middle, but we want to err on the side of not deflation. So we're going to set it. Uh, that's about 2% <laughs> and the kind of, you know, put their finger on two percent and said that is mm-hmm. what inflation should be from here on out. Two percent per year is, you know, two percent inflation of the U.S. dollar is what we will see in a perfectly healthy economy. Which, yeah, I yeah, I, that just goes to that sounds like Stalin. That sounds like Stalin saying we need two percent more. Yeah, two percent inflation forever. That, right. That, that's. That's the solution. That's in my all-knowing, in my infinite wisdom, <laughs> 2% inflation, when really there's a bunch of different things. There's a bunch of different things that could play in, and and there are scenarios where deflation is actually not a bad thing. In fact, as consumers, you might think, as a consumer, you might think deflation is actually a good thing. <laughs> like if I want right. to buy a TV, and the TV costs $2,000, and I waited a year, and now it costs you know one thousand dollars I wait another year and it cost seven hundred dollars that's cool now I I couldn't afford one TV two years ago and now I can afford two TVs because simply we, you know the economy got so efficient and the, the competitive marketplace for TVs was so efficient and, and competitive that TVs themselves to me as a consumer without doing anything became cheaper to me that's price deflation that right. TV for the same amount of dollars, I could buy more TVs. That's actually a strengthening dollar. The Federal Reserve says, no, that's bad. That's the worst thing that could happen in the economy. That sounds like the Great Depression. Well, for me, right. that sounds like I get more TVs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's so much, there's so many subtleties that go into a, a market marketplace right. with inflationary uh, and deflationary forces.
1: Yeah, and like you're constantly seeing different sectors – having either increasing prices or decreasing prices. Right. So like when I was working in the lighting industry, we had a really hard time as a business with deflation, right? Like it was so competitive in the led market that the technology was getting better and better, and better. And everything was just cost down, cost down, cost down. And the price of the leds was just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But like for all the people in you know contracting business, this was this was potential for new avenues of business. You started seeing these new businesses pop up where they'd you know go to a big skyscraper and say, hey, we'll replace every light in your building with a more energy efficient LED and you'll save a ton of money on your electric bill and we'll just take a piece of that for doing the replacement for you. And so for us it was squeezing our profit margin. But for other people, it was generating new businesses, right? And so, like, for one producer, deflation might be a problem. But for another, it's it's a win. And generally, for the consumer all around, it's a win. And so, you're always seeing deflation here. And sometimes you see inflation, right? Like, so if uh, in the oil market, you know, if, if the uh, inventories are... Um, piling up and there's like less oil on the market, then the price of oil goes up, right? So that's inflation of the price of oil. So you're constantly seeing like deflation and inflation all the time in different things. And so it's not like those markets where that are seeing deflation are just collapsing, right? So it, it doesn't seem to be a problem in individual markets, but somehow for the total overall market, we just have to have inflation, which doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Right. Yeah. The, the argument I, I often hear about why def- deflation is so bad is, um, you know, then the economy will crawl to a halt. Because, you know, as people say, who would buy a house when you know you could buy a house next year for, you know, if there's if there's 5% deflation next year, the house is going to be 5% cheaper. And my answer to that is somebody who needs to live in a house. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, they, there's, a, there's such a thing as informed transactions where somebody is paying a price today that they're content with. They're happy with the price. You know, if right. I... If I Perceived value in a, in living in a house, and I'm willing to pay you know four hundred thousand dollars today to live in this house for the rest of my life. Right. Then I will I will you know I will move forward in that transaction. It doesn't matter what the the price of the house to me. It doesn't matter what the price of that house is later on in the future because all I care about right now is you know putting myself in this house today because I would like to live in a house. And I need somewhere to live.
1: And if you never ever planned on selling that house for the rest of your life, its price is essentially irrelevant to you once you've purchased it. You know, like if you have a fixed mortgage and you're like, yep, it's affordable now and I want to live in it and I like it and I want it. You're going to buy it and you're going to say, who gives a fuck what the price is for the rest of time? Because I'm never going to sell it. Right. And so The only time a-
0: I care about inflation or deflation of, or like change of price in, in a house I want to buy is if mm-hmm. I'm speculating. Right. If I'm speculating on I want to be able to resell this in the future, that's when I care. And that's actually a bad thing for an economy when there's rampant speculation because rampant speculation causes bubbles. Right. And, and bubbles can pop and that can cause some bad things to happen in an economy.
1: Right. So. That's sort of what happened in two thousand eight is people were just all speculating housing price would just keep going up and up and up and up. And then when it didn't that's when everyone who was using loans they couldn't pay back to buy houses, those all those loans went bankrupt. And so the lenders got screwed, the lendees got screwed, their house got foreclosed. It just it was bad for everyone all around. And but the problem was is part of this behavior was enabled by the Federal Reserve setting interest rates probably lower than they should have been. You know, again, like me or John doesn't necessarily know what interest rates should be in like a market determined interest rate, but most likely it was too low considering the behavior we saw. And this is the reason they're setting interest rates low was because after the, 2000 dot com bubble burst they were worried about a recession so they dropped interest rates super low for a while and it's like
0: well yeah it was in a recession they were in a recession they wanted to get out of the recession
1: but it it was a mild one right like like the dot com bubble and the recession following it were pretty mild in the grand scheme of things and yet interest rates were dropped down very low and held low for a long time and a lot of people now recognize that this is what caused the bubble in the housing market
0: yes and so to and just to clarify um since we're doing like the whole history of like how the fed started an act, in the fomc um their federal Open market committee um right so their, their aim is to reduce unemployment and reduce inflation and they have two vehicles to do that one we've already talked about as the provider of liquidity um, I mean, they issue dollars, so they can literally—they are the only entity in, in the entire world that can print dollars. Mm-hmm. And in in doing so, you know, what did that look like originally? And that's what Jeff was talking about with the exchange rate going from twenty to one to thirty-five to one. They were essentially creating dollars where there were none before. They were essentially printing money. Then came the times when they actually printed money with a printing press. Uh, on the printing press, they were able to, you know, print what we have in our pockets are now dollar bills. And then now in the future, or now in the future, now in the present um, and in the future, they can, you know, it, it, when they print money, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the printing press. They can do um, something such as buy a government treasury and create the money out of thin air, create the bits that they would need to wire. You know, I have, I have, you know, money in my bank account online. That money doesn't exist anywhere except for bits on a computer. So the Federal Reserve, what they can do is just create the bits out of thin air. Right. So that's, those are the two vehicles that the Federal Reserve has at their, at their disposal. The um, Or sorry, I didn't say the second one. The, the first one is the, that the liquidity is providing liquidity and the second one is they are able to set the rate at which banks lend to each other overnight on their cash that they have on hand and that what this is called is the Fed Funds Rate and it's a a huge that so that rate that the banks lend to each other overnight it's actually very largely dependent or it's there's a lot of other rates that are largely dependent on that rate. So by influencing that rate, they are able to enact enact their force the force that they want to enact on the economy. They're able to do so through that dictate. If they dictate that the the Fed funds rate should be, you know, 1.75 percent to 2 percent, then the Fed then then banks have to lend to each other overnight at that rate. Which affects the loans that the banks give to other banks um, for other for other durations. It de- depends on. Or it affects the rates that they offer to consumers for different durations, and it basically affects all of the lending in the entire economy. So when they right. raise the rate, the lending in the economy is is at raised interest rates, and when they lower the rate, the lending in the economy is at lowered interest rates. And Jeff did right. touch on that um, when he was talking about after the two thousand com bubble burst, they artificially lowered they lowered rates to an artificially low level at which it made borrowing easier in the economy. It allowed entities seeking loans they were able to get loans at a lower price. The, mm. At a, I'm sorry, at a higher. They really well, get like if you call interest, interest
1: the, yeah, like if the interest is basically the price of a loan, so the lower the interest rate, the lower the price of a loan. So essentially, like if you think about it, just like anything else, if you lower the price of something, you're gonna get more demand for that thing, so you're gonna get more lending. But right, yeah, like if you think about it, in a if a the market's completely free, it's not manipulated. There's no central body, then there's gonna be some market determined. Price of interest just like there would be for the price of corn or whatever else like there's right, it's a market there's, there's right there's a market forces or, that the supply and demand setting the price of something so the price of interest would normally be set by market demand for loans right so if if there's not a lot of and supply of them right so if there's a low amount of savings and really high demand for loans like a lot of people have some really good ideas or whatever, they just, they really need that money, but savings are low, you should expect a high, uh, rate of interest. Uh, and that's kind of actually the environment we're working in today is we have a low amount of savings. Um, and yet, and probably, I don't know, I wouldn't say necessarily a high demand for lending. Probably we do to sustain a lot of the, um, companies that are losing money they have that's probably generating a lot of demand for uh, loans like uh, an example you might have seen in the news recently is WeWork. work uh, it's a perfect example of a company that basically only exists because interest rates are low um, they just were not able to even get close to making a profit they were losing billions of dollars every quarter um, and the only way you can do that is if you can get loans at a cheap enough rate that you just keep getting more and more debt. And then you, as long as you can get enough revenue to pay off your debt, you can just keep that thing going. And so companies like that are probably pushing on demand for loans and um, there's not a lot of savings. So we should expect a high interest rate, but the federal reserve is doing everything it can to keep that interest rate low. And so instead of these companies, like we work. Just, I mean, it is going bankrupt now, but like a company like this had no business getting as big as it did. And so when you have these low interest rates, you have these really big companies who employ lots and lots of people, which may seem like a good thing, right? But if all those people are basically helping build this company that is not viable, it can't make money on its own, it's never going to profit essentially all those people are wasting their time. And so that company should not exist. And these people should find employment in something else that is profitable, is productive, and is a good use of their time. And so you may be able to keep GDP measures and stuff afloat and make the economy seem healthy by lowering interest rates, by letting companies get cheap loans and keep their you know, keep their little thing going and all those people don't have to get laid off. And it seems like a good thing and we have avoided recession for some time. But the reality is we're keeping people employed in things that are not as productive as we could be. We're not generating as much value and as much wealth as we otherwise could be. And so this slowly can eat away at the wealth we should be generating over time
0: right yeah and um so to kind of provide a little bit of context for that there's this quote i really wanted to share um from alan greenspan who was the federal reserve chairman um in the 80s that the, the market was facing a lot of a lot of volatility. There was a lot of risk. the The finance, the corporate institutions were really um, lacking confidence in what the financial future, their financial futures would be. Um, it was a, a time of heavy uncertainty. And Alan Greenspan came out. Actually, before I even say that, um, the the chair, the chairman of the Federal Reserve before him was faced with similar uncertainty and he raised the the fed funds rate up to 20%. Um, he was facing inflation, so uh, they raised the fed funds rate really high and um, the inflation wa- went away, but they did go into recession. So it was kind of like a bit of medicine that he served the economy. Like this isn't going to taste good, you know, the economy's going into recession, a lot of people were out of work. You know, it was mm-hmm. really hard time for a lot of people, but in squat in squashing the inflation he actually served the American people in the longer run um, to, you know, kind of provide a, a, an actual... Um, he provided a sustainability, almost, where mm-hmm. the short-term recession actually led to a longer-term, um, you know, uh, safety of the U.S. dollar. But then, so I'll follow that up with Alan Greenspan, um, who became... Fed Chairman in 1987, um, later later in the year that he became Federal Chairman, uh, or Federal Reserve Board Chairman, um, he came out and said, The Federal Reserve, consistent with its responsibilities at the, as the nation's central bank, affirmed today its readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. Um, and the reason that this was really Crucial, a crucial turning point for the Federal Reserve was um, this was a signal to the markets that faced with uncertainty, the Federal Reserve was not only acting in its dual mandate. This is the subtext of that quote is that um, you know, especially the the part where he says we're looking at financial the financial system, he was kind of verifying that not only are they looking for long term. Uh, not only are they looking at the to lower unemployment rates long term and lower inflation long term, but to keep the financial system chugging along, to keep the markets happy, mm-hmm. which was never in their mandate. But he, but the fact that he indicated that that's something they'd be focusing on, set a precedent for the for Wall Street. Set a precedent for Federal Federal Reserve Chairman from then on, um, and we can really see it today uh and how the market acts and how the federal reserve chair reacts even though those two variables that they look at unemployment and inflation have nothing to do with the stock market that was kind of the indication that no the politically um quote-unquote politically independent federal reserve um was not so (laughs) politically independent they weren't as independent as they should be in that they have a a conflict of interest, almost, where they are actually going to be looking at financial markets and and e- and easing for the sake of uh, or trying to ease the quantitative. I'm sorry. They're trying to. <laughs> it led to this. Basically, led to quantitative easing in order to keep the market afloat. Um, right. Which is very. My point is that is not what they're meant to be doing. That's not why they exist. They're not supposed to be sending the stock market up. But quantitative easing, which we can which we can talk about, hmm. was specifically, uh, if you look back to Alan Greenspan's motives, was specifically something that was trying to keep the stock market, you know, afloat and continuing to go well,
1: up. Well, quantitative easing was Bernanke.
0: Right, but what I'm saying is this was a precursor to... Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, he set like the precedent.
0: Yeah, he set... Yeah, because it was Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, and now Powell. And all yeah. four of them are these the ones that tended towards, you know, making the markets happy as opposed to just uh, something like Volcker did, which was kind of short-term pain in the markets mm-hmm. for long-term you know stability. Whereas today we're seeing... do whatever it it takes to make the markets happy as opposed to just low unemployment and low inflation.
1: Right. And, I mean, I don't think they're simply just, like, it's as simple as, like, oh, I just want the stock market to go up just because or whatever, like, because it will make people happy. Like, it's, I think there's an immense amount of political pressure, not from, like, trump or anything like that but like from what is essentially everyone's pension retirement account 401k ira all these things are filled with stocks and bonds and other things that essentially they they desperately need the like this kind of bubble to keep chugging chugging along, right? If they, you know, raise interest rates higher, you know, to try to get them back to normal so that they're not, you know, I mean, the danger in what we're doing right now is getting runaway inflation. And people say it's nothing to worry about because inflation right now is, you know, it's like 2% around there. Um, And so they're like, ah, we're fine, we're fine. But, you know, that's just looking at um, the change in average prices, essentially, right? And so you could imagine a world in which actually our technological innovation was so good that we actually should have been getting a ton of deflation, right? And so this... You can think about the amount of, like, money printing and all this other stuff and low interest rates that they're doing, as overcorrecting, so much so that it's dragging out, dragging up what should have been large deflation, all the way up to like what is actually inflationary. And so, um, you know, it may look like there's low inflation, but really there's, like, a lot of deterioration of the average person's savings in order to benefit things like stocks and bonds and everything else. And so I think this is why we're seeing a lot of this populism starting to happen is the average person doesn't really own that many assets. They may not own like some some of them own a house but maybe let's look at someone who's you know, towards the bottom end of the ladder, they don't own stocks. They don't own a house. They don't owe bonds. They might have like a lower interest savings account. And now if the federal reserve is doing things like quantitative easing, which is just a fancy word for printing money to buy things like stocks and bonds. Well, they've never bought stocks, but they've bought bonds, um, and lower interest rates a lot, which. When you lower interest rates, that sends the stock market higher and it sends housing markets higher. Um, And so people who own all these things benefit, right? And that's rich people. And people who don't own these things, their savings are basically being uh, inflated in order to increase the value of all these things that rich people own. And so I think now more than ever, you're seeing a lot of frustration from the average person because they're noticing their life just isn't getting better at the same rate that people at the top are. And so this is, you know, real consequences. I think this is part of why Trump is so popular right now. It's part of why socialists are especially popular on the left side. And it's because they feel left behind by the system. And I think this is a large part of this. Almost the majority part of this is because of what the Federal Reserve is doing. And so essentially what they're doing is they're trying to appease all the people that vote. People with like retirement accounts. Those people go out and vote at the sake of like all these other people who tend not to vote as much. But they're not even elected so it doesn't really matter but it's just like i don't know it seems like they're they're just prioritizing one because people i don't think people realize what's happening right now like they would notice if everyone's 401k got cut in half right like that would be people would be up in arms if that happened but if people's like checking account is slowing the value of that's being slowly eroded You know, it's kind of like the frog boiling in the pot. Like, you just don't really notice. So I think people at the bottom, they don't realize what's happening to them right now. And it's at the sake of preventing that haircut people would take on, like, their retirement account, which they definitely would notice. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Right. No, yeah, that's a – yeah, talking about – so we're getting into the effects of the Federal Reserve – um, kind mm-hmm. of when we started I kind of mentioned you know what what are they doing what should they be doing so mm-hmm. the discussion about you know the, their mandate you know what they should be doing what mm-hmm. they should be doing you know since they control such an important part of our economy which is lending that's how mm-hmm. you know that's really ha- the vehicle in which an economy can grow efficiently is if there's efficient lending so to mess around with the lending market, you're really messing around with not only today, but the future of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they get it wrong, it has, co- it has tremendous consequences. And so what should they be doing? They should be, they should be hearing signs of, of uh, what you mentioned before, how there's not much savings. There's not much savings, there's, and there's a lot of borrowing, and there's a lot of speculation. All mm-hmm. those are signs of a bubble, and and what they're doing to combat any kind of slowdown that might be resulting from the, uh, anything in the market that could cause a slowdown, uh, or like a cease of hiring, people to, you know to lose their jobs, they're lowering mm-hmm. interest rates further so that it's easier for corporations to stay around and easier for them to borrow money and what that in artificially low interest rates just as you said raises the price of assets so people that own assets well who owns assets rich people and Mm -hmm. who doesn't own assets you know people that are towards the poorer end so Mm -hmm. what they're actually doing in it, with their short-term goal of you know keeping the economy chugging along and escaping any kind of recession at all costs, is they're actually increasing you know wealth inequality, for one. Right. So, wh- what should they be doing? They should be seeing that and they should be afraid of that. They should be afraid of you know extreme inequality. Jay Powell, who's the current Fed chair, has mentioned inequality as a problem that he sees. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make sense because if he's lowering interest rates, he's not addressing that problem. He's doing the opposite of right. addressing that problem and making it and worse. And it's like,
1: I don't think he realizes he's doing it, though. Or maybe Either, he does, I mean, and question, maybe he's just a liar. I don't know.
0: Right. It's hard for me to understand how he can say in, like, a recently he said in, like, a an a address after the FOMC meeting where, he set, where they set the rates. Mm-hmm. He says, he comes out and says straight up, I don't see any problems in the economy right now. When debt is at an all-time high in many different sectors, um, transportation is at like an 11-month low, or transportation for, uh, you know, freight, freight like right, measures like, of freight activity. Like shipping. Shipping activity, uh, yeah, all mm-hmm. freight, shipping, uh, train. Trains, yeah,
1: and like manufacturing's uh, already in a recession.
0: Right. So for for me and you to be able to recognize that um and for him to say I see absolutely nothing of concern. Like,
1: like he's obviously like, lying.
0: It's obviously lying.
1: Right. Like of course he knows these things. If he doesn't, like that's that would be absurd, right?
0: Right. And but I that, think we really, that's we, I think we really should talk about Um, So I mentioned quantitative easing, and Mm -hmm. to to combat the – so what quantitative easing is, is net – is bulk purchases of securities in the open market by the Federal Reserve. Um, Now, if you've been following, you may be thinking the Federal Reserve can print money. So what business does it have purchasing securities in the open market? Because Mm -hmm. if you're purchasing securities in in an open market – the market for securities, you know, contains all sorts of investors, and all right. and all investors have something in common. They have a fixed budget, or they have a fixed amount of money that they can invest. Right. The Federal Reserve does not have a fixed. They can print right. money. They print money to rise to the occasion yeah. of whatever they want to buy, and and in, if, go, yeah, you go ahead.
1: If they're buying securities, guess who likes that? The people who own securities, right? Because then that means they get it at a higher price, for. For basically free, right? Because the Fed's just creating that money to buy it.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, and who are they buying it from? Well, they're buying what the the securities that they bought were largely uh, federal treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that were held by the banks who are on the brink of collapse. Um, Large banks in 2008 were at the brink of collapse for what Jeff had said about the calamity f- caused by um, mortgage, the mortgage mm-hmm. bubble that existed, mm-hmm. where people thought that the that um, leveraging yourself on the bet that housing prices were going to continue to go up was a safe one. So banks became over leveraged to that exposure, and when it didn't. When that ceased to be true when mortgage when housing prices started to go down um these banks had no liquidity and they were going to you know file for bankruptcy which would have been devastating for our economy um mm-hmm. it would have been a lot worse than what we saw in 2008 but what the federal reserve did to step in and save the day supposedly quote unquote mm-hmm. save the day was purchase these securities from the banks call in a quantitative easing action with the with the intention of purchasing so the, the Federal Reserve balance sheet which is the the their uh, assets and liabilities on their balance sheet was eight hundred thousand no, dollars I'm sorry eight hundred billion dollars before quantitative easing which is a lot of money but it's it was kind of like organic growth from that. It was kind of just like a straight line up to eight hundred thousand right. like over the past.
1: Yeah, it took like, like 100 years. years. Yeah, 100 years to go <laughs>
0: $800 billion. Well, they purchased, uh, their balance sheet expanded to $4.5 trillion of assets that they had in total. Um, so that's, you know, a growth of $3.7 trillion over the course of uh, about three or four years through hmm. several rounds of quantitative easing. So just massive money printing. To purchase these securities they said it wasn't money printing they said it was just a temporary yeah they just said it was just temporary a temporary action they were just buying these securities with the intention of selling them in the future selling them back to the banks
1: and you'd think with all that money printing we'd see inflation but basically what happened is banks took those like cash injections and then just stored them at the federal reserve Because the Federal Reserve pays them to hold excess reserves because that's another way, one of their incentives to keep banks, you know, from like they implemented to, yeah, keep them solvent. You know, excess cash that prevents like a run on the banks, keeps them from, you know, going bankrupt. And so there's a little incentive to hold their reserves at the Federal Reserve. So banks are basically getting paid to hold on to these reserves so they're just making money for no reason so like you know if you if it feels like the banks aren't playing fair it's because they aren't
0: (laughs) right so the the quantitative easing that was done in the early 2010s um supposedly saved the day right the stock market right. went down uh 20 30% but then mm-hmm. ever since there that bottom it has gone up you know another it has gone up um, a lot i don't i, I don't have the number <laughs> but ever since like the bottom w- where fed, the federal reserve announced quantitative easing would be starting mm-hmm. the stock market has just gone up and up and up
1: right until they so, started to reduce their balance sheet in like 2018 and raise interest rates, the stock market started to tank and they changed their mind. And like, they they did that for like three months. And then they, they were like, nope, we're done with that now. So what was supposed to be temporary, they got about three months in. It was 10 years. They're like, took them to even attempt to undo what was supposed to be temporary. So 10 years they waited to finally undo This thing they said was going to be temporary. And three months in, they gave up. And now it's right back to where we were.
0: Yeah, that's the key. That's the most important thing. Um, That's the most important thing we're looking at today with the Federal Reserve. How in 2008, we were faced with a crisis. We were faced with the Great Recession. And the Federal Reserve came in to save the day. They performed quantitative easing. And they dropped interest rates all the way to zero. So interest rates were low, and uh, the and the, the central bank was, you know, quantitative easing was providing excess liquidity into the economy. The the rationale behind that, and I'll be honest, it it could have worked in an ideal world. To provide yeah. excess liquidity and to provide low interest rates would allow businesses to to grow, new businesses to form. You know, if, hmm. if it really if it really um, shored up our economy, if it allowed businesses to to grow unimpeded over a 10-year hmm. period, then hey, yes, it, it worked. It worked as you planned. But the the measure of it working, the measure of how much did we shore up the economy, was okay. Now start to take away that 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 liquidity that you injected in in the early 2010s, and start to raise interest rates to a normal level. The zero mm. is below the the normal level. <laughs> so once you start to, to do that, you, you start to do um, just just not even raising interest rates. Well, actually, the interest rates went up to about two percent. So that the high before the the Great Recession was um, probably around five yeah, percent.
1: So it they got around. back up
0: to they got back up to two point five. They got up, you know. <laughs> like half Halfway. to what it was before. And the market started to crash. Businesses said we can't we can't handle this. We have too many lo- we, we we took on <laughs> too many loans. Well, the mm-hmm. Federal Reserve wanted them <laughs> to build their business, to start to save and to start to invest in their future. But what they didn't said was they took out loans for short-term, you know, expenditure. And they never Right,
1: cuz why wouldn't you? Cuz it was so cheap. <laughs> exactly. The Federal Reserve <laughs> provided
0: them a 0% interest rate and told them, "Don't take on debt, and start to invest in your <laughs> company's future. Well, if company right. said, well, why would I do that? I can, you know, <laughs> I can borrow at 0%. I can borrow free money. Um, why would I invest in the f- future of my company when I can, I can, if I want to really see my quarterly stock earnings, when I publish right. my quarterly stock earnings, I really want to see that number as maximized as possible, like maximized to the full extent I possibly can. And, right, because uh, you can so not-
1: jack up your share price real quick with some extra money, like with <coughs> a ton of leverage and super low payments. That does, so if you're if if the interest rate's like almost zero, right? Then your monthly payment on that interest is like nothing, right? But with all that extra capital at hand, you can make a lot more money. You can get a lot more growth. So your cash flow, your your earnings. Is gonna explode. It's gonna make your business look very good uh, in the short run, and so like that could drive up your share prices a ton, and then you can just cash out and get fucking rich. <laughs>
0: yeah, and also a lot of the, a lot of executives at corporations are incentivized. Their incentive structure is based on this the stock price, the share price. Right. So if you can if you can take excess. If you can take in excess cash flow, for exactly what you're saying, Jeff, and also for share buybacks, you can literally, as a company, just buy back shares, which will also send the, the stock price up. So it right. created all sorts of, you know, moral hazards. Just the Federal Reserve, in an attempt to, to give the economy another chance to you know to live to fight another day, it actually made the problem ten times worse. It just did the exact opposite <laughs> of what it should do. It tried to prescribe right. a solution to a problem that was caused by the solution that is was being prescribed by the Federal Reserve. Right.
1: So, so we're sort of like trapped in this cycle at this point. And there's really no way out at this point. Like, it's just gonna keep we're gonna have to keep driving interest rates lower and lower and we're already at zero. So now they're talking things like negative interest rates or just you know, the Federal Reserve right now is printing money and they're, they're barely even mentioning it. They're like, Oh, it's just, it's nothing. It's, it's not quantitative easing. It's, it's, you know, it's just, it's just whatever. It's just short term interest rates. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. They're afraid to call
0: it quantitative easing. They're afraid to call what they called quantitative easing the first time. They're afraid to call it that again, because to admit that this is what they're doing again, when the first time they did it was supposedly temporary, If if they're Mm -hmm. doing it again, that proves that the first time they did it, it was not temporary. It's a permanent increase of the balance sheet. Exactly. It's just debt monetization.
1: Right. And so essentially we're in this trap where we basically have to just keep printing more and more money in order to prevent, uh, like, this deleveraging from happening. When I say deleveraging, that means, like, people from uh, defaulting on debts, you know, restructuring, downsizing, having layoffs. This is this is all the stuff that happens in a recession to, in order to shore up these loans, to make sure, you know, to, to, in order to pay back these loans that you couldn't pay back and all that good stuff that happens when you try and fix the problem. But instead we just have to perpetually keep the supply of money uh, getting bigger and bigger so that people can keep maintaining what we're in. And so we're, we're essentially trapped. And the only way out is for them to let interest rates normalize. But at this point, we're so f- deep in this trap that it would be so immensely painful that they, they just can't bring themselves to do it because of how politically unpopular it, would be, it is. But the reality is, I think what they're doing is they're they're driving a huge wedge into wealth inequality and people do not, they really don't see this. Like I, when you have people like on the Democratic side talking about wealth inequality, you have it on the Trump side too. Like Trump, a lot of people voted for Trump because he's going to bring their jobs back or whatever. Like a lot of promises to like the majority, right? Like populism, like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the economy work for you. So everyone out there can sense it but I don't see anyone who notices, and it's pointing out that a lot of this is due to what the Federal Reserve is doing.
0: Yeah, no one is talking about the, the moral hazards created by the Federal Reserve when I, th- and when I try to think about why that's the case. I think when it comes to politicians, they're incentivized not to talk about it because – to talk about a truly uh, redistribution of to a redistributive uh, policy of the federal reserve, maybe raising interest rates, maybe not quantitative easing. Well, that's mm-hmm. that's really bad for the federal government because quantitative easing quantitative easing um, lowers the lowers the price of the government's borrowing since the since quantitative easing involves buying. Uh, U.S. government treasuries, government treasuries being what the government issues to borrow to spend at a deficit.
1: Right. When, right. The,
0: when politicians, if, if a politician was in favor of less quantitative easing, that means making it more expensive to borrow. And also, I mean, obviously raising interest rates would make it more expensive to borrow because you have to pay higher interest. So those two things for, to a politician Means that they can spend less, and when a politician can spend less, they can't do necessarily. They can't. They don't have as much power, and they can't do what they want. So politicians are actually negative. Are also negatively incentivized. So every entity in this situation is incentivized against acting. uh, incentivized against calling out the Fed, and and addressing the real stem of the problem of this economic inequality. Either that, they don't understand it. A lot of people right. stick the Fed as like, you know, an all-knowing. You know, they're
1: they're, <laughs> they're all
0: economic uh, PhDs. They all have PhDs. So a lot of people <laughs> say that the, the Federal Reserve, you know, that you know they've got their their quantitative analysis and their formulas and all this really complicated stuff. It's not complicated. It's obvious. We've seen <laughs> right. bubble after bubble inflated by the Fed, and crashed down, and we just see and we're seeing the same thing again, and. But people just aren't calling it out, so it's really yeah.
1: But up they for got it. their PhD, their yeah. pretty huge dick, so they can just predict <laughs> exactly what is going to happen in the economy. They're all knowing. There are there are saviors, you know, like they're they're going to take care of us,
0: right? It's uh, it's absurd, um, and it's up to us as you know, as the educated populace, well as the populace right. to become educated to understand what the Federal Reserve is doing and call them out and say, we don't want this. We don't want corporations to exist that shouldn't exist. We don't want value right. destroying corporations which are destroying our standard of living and f- and, 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 and strengthening the gap of inequality. We want a, right. a true economy that's growing and allowing market forces to to win the day and to, to allow value creating entities to come forth and and be and 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 win more market share and that's the way forward not not just trusting the phds at the central bank to (laughs) to maneuver our way out
1: right and like if you ask yourself oh like a recession like that's so horrible that's terrible like like how could you want that you know how could you want layoffs and things like that well like to me this is this is an opportunity for the average person right a, a recession like yes some of us are going to get laid off and we're going to lose our job and that's going to suck um but if you have money saved up and you and you handle your money properly this is also potentially a buying opportunity. All those stocks that are overpriced now suddenly are not overpriced. Now you can get your money in at a reasonable um, value and you can start to build your portfolio. Maybe housing will get cut down to a place where you can now finally afford to buy a house. Like this is a, for all the people who have nothing, a big financial crash is is a buying opportunity. And when all these businesses uh bankrupt and all these people get laid off well those people are just as talented as they were before they got laid off and now all their labor is freed up to do something new and better and so new businesses will come along and use their talents in a better way that isn't doesn't need to be enabled with debt you know It, it the, the businesses that couldn't get started because labor is so expensive because unemployment is so low, maybe these businesses will be able to get off the ground and we'll start to see better growth. So it's not all negative. Like, yes, it is negative. And for some people, it could be extremely painful and others. But right now what's happening is we're basically letting the federal reserve pick the winners and losers. And, the winners are a smaller number of people than the number of losers right now.
0: Yeah. Um, they should just be honest. Yeah. I think it should just be
1: right. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you're listening to this, go out, read, read, read some stuff about the federal reserve and they'll you know, don't just take our word for it, but like read into it yourself. Like we're just a couple of assholes, but we, you know, we've done a lot of research and, uh, you know, I think what's happening with the Federal Reserve is, you know, it's 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 honestly one of the biggest problems facing America right now, and yet not very many people are talking about it, other than Trump saying, you know, drive interest rates even lower, and so that he's just advocating more of the same, that that's policy that got us here in the first place, so. I mean, maybe we should talk solutions a little bit. I guess, right? Because we're here, we are for an hour talking about the problem. I don't think we mentioned anything about like what should be done, right?
0: Right. Um, I mean, it's tough. I've had this conversation with people, and Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, yeah. That's the next question. What you know? What's the solution? And it's tough because it's, like, the solution was to not do make this mistake in the 80s, not make this mistake in the, <laughs> not in the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's really no, you know, s- soft landing. A lot of people kind of mm-hmm. dream about, like, people in our situation no. that are t- seeing this, they say, oh, there can be a soft landing if the federals are mm-hmm. just, you know, enacts, you know, good policy, but there's Mm -hmm. really no soft landing. Like a lot of, a lot of the investment there is out there is malinvestment. And the only Mm -hmm. thing, the only, you know, malinvestment is investment into a value destroying entity. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not profitable. It's, it's, it requires further investment to maintain itself, which is just a money pit. It's just a money sink. You know, you're just losing (laughs) money in that. So um, the, the answer is to, you know, to get rid of that malinvestment. Um, and, mm-hmm. and a way to do that is to either, you know, raise rates to a, a normalized level or just allow the market to set rates. You know, banks are perfectly capable right. of determining how much they want to lend to each other based on right. know, risk and you know credit assessment. You know, banks are very, very, um, they're very, very, you know, high, high tech, adequate. Adic- you know they're um, what's the word I'm looking for? Competent, competent? yeah, competent institutions <laughs> that are able to rank uh, each other based on credit risk. They're not competent in in not being able to to see what's speculative and uh, <laughs> and like a bubble when it's forming. They're just fueled by greed and um, short sightedness and short term profits. We're
1: and, all fueled by greed,
0: right? Right. I mean it's not a bank's responsibility. Yeah, there's to, nothing wrong with right.
1: being greedy in my opinion. Right. It's, it's just that's it's just that's what people are. We right. gotta acknowledge we gotta realize that.
0: Right. So
1: And um, it, it's it's not a problem until they're getting special help from the like a government body right. like the Federal Reserve. Yeah. You know, right. Greedy. Like if when the it's banks untracked. were being greedy unchecked. Right. If they're being greedy on their own devices, I don't see that as a problem. But if they're getting favors from the Federal Reserve and et cetera, et cetera, that's when it's right begins to be a problem. If
0: you're greedy and you want to turn a hundred out a hundred dollars into a thousand dollars, but you know that there's ten times more likelihood that you're gonna to go to zero and you still act, <laughs> then it's like, Okay, well, I mean, you know, you wanted something to happen and you understood the risks risks right and you went for it and so whatever happened either you make money congratulations or you lost your money you know <laughs> yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that's unlucky you know but but greediness in that scenario it's it's met with you know the educate the educated sides of what what can happen but if, you, if that 100 right. if that person wants to turn a hundred dollars into a thousand dollars and they're told you know that it's it's a hundred percent you know it's a surefire thing that's going to happen a hundred dollars <laughs> will turn into a thousand dollars just do this and Everybody listens to that. Well, you got to mm-hmm. look at why are they thinking that? Like that doesn't make sense. Right. What whatever yeah. whatever information prevailed to make them think that needs to be stopped because it's that's not like that's a you know that's a fairy tale that's imaginary that's there's no there's right. no such thing as you know risk free reward it's risk and reward or right. the trade off. So. Exactly. Uh, so greed that's unchecked that's that's not founded in reality. Is, is a bad thing and i think the federal reserve
1: right.
0: has a lot of blame to be assigned just to, to going back to greenspan to make the markets think that pile on the risk because the federal reserve has got your back when it comes to we're not going to let the financial we're not going to let the stock market go down so that's right it's just done everybody a disservice in that except i guess the people right. that the- get massive paychecks on wall street but
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like, they're they're making winners and losers. That's what they're doing. Not everyone hates the Federal Reserve. A lot of people are rich because of it. Right. And so, like, they're just picking winners and losers. But the reality is, is the winners are people who don't need the help. Right. You know? They're probably pretty smart people already. They're probably pretty industrious. They could probably get rich or, you know, mildly wealthy On their own, you know, they they just don't need the help, right? You know, and so we should not be just like sacrificing our economy to help these people out. Like it just doesn't really make sense,
0: right? Yeah, and so yeah, so back to what I was saying, like allowing rates to go back to a normalized level. Well, mm-hmm. it's going to be bad for a lot of people because that malinvestment is in the form of large corporations. And large corporations employ a, a lot of people in our country. So what right. it'll look like, what the solution looks like is a lot of short-term pain. A lot of companies going out of business, you know, a lot of unemployment, mm-hmm. um, probably a, a lot of inflation, mm-hmm. which is bad for everybody holding dollars yeah, everybody well, who transact. I don't think
1: the, I, th- I don't think there will be inflation if the Federal Reserve doesn't do anything. Right. Or raises interest rates or whatever. Like if they let interest rates rise, I think there would actually be deflation.
0: Yeah, that's actually true. That's a good point cuz um, the inflation the inflationary scenario is if rather than all these defaults that were uh, that are going to become very prevalent allowing them mm-hmm. to actually default if the federal reserve steps in and provides excess liquidity beyond you know what we've already mm-hmm. seen which is already extremely uh, unprecedented they're mm-hmm. you know they're going to be providing first the first time was four and a half trillion the next time might be eight trillion ten trillion
1: right so right um
0: that in that scenario that would be, be deeply deeply inflationary the dollar could plummet in value and so everyone holding dollars, but that's not the solution that that would be the, that would be the part of the problem. Right.
1: That's, that's more, that's more of the same, right. uh, to the extreme even. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say what the federal reserve needs to do is they need to do less, you know, <laughs> they, they yeah. need to take some advice from this podcast, take hands. but the yeah. the reality is, um, if you look at, uh, like, so we talked about how the Federal Reserve was printing a bunch of money right now as we speak um, to keep overnight uh, loan rates at the Federal Reserve, right? So they, they spiked up above it um, on the market. Like There's types of loans that compete with the Fed funds rate, and um, those loans spiked up to like 8 and 10% where they should be at like 2% because there's just not enough uh, save or reserves on the market. And so the Fed stepped in to provide more reserves to keep those rates low. So the reality is, if the Fed just stopped doing anything, we could be seeing short-term rates spiking up to like 10% right now. Mm-hmm. In fact, they did already before the Fed did something. What he's referring so, like,
0: to is the uh, repo... The repo rate, overnight repo. Right. Yeah. It's like
1: overnight repurchase. It's basically just like overnight lending. It's similar to what the federal funds is. Yeah. It's very short term lending. But again, all lending like competes with one another. Right. So it's like if that short term lending spikes up, other lendings are going to be affected by it as well. So, like, I think the Fed, if the Fed just stopped doing anything, It could be pretty severe so i think what the fed basically needs to do is take a look at everything they're actively doing and just start to roll back until they're basically at the point where they're not doing anything
0: (laughs) right which is such a hard thing for them to do because there's such like a cognitive bias to like if you see something happening in your purview Mm -hmm. and you're like realm of uh in your realm of Manifestation manifest changing. Um mm-hmm. it's so hard not to act, you feel like you need to do something. But right. sometimes the best the best scenario is to let things unfold. Let let market forces right. interact and let uh market forces prevail.
1: Right. Like have you ever seen that uh SpongeBob episode where they got the magic conch and they go, What well, magic conch, what should we do now? And they pull a string and it's like Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And then they all just sit there, and then the plane flies by and drops all the food for them. Yeah. It's like, I mean, obviously, instead of a plane full of food, it's going to be a recession. But sometimes the best thing to do is actually just nothing.
0: Right. It's really a topic that I can't stress enough how important it is. It really is just... Um, it's not normal. You know what I mean? It's just it's it's just something mm-hmm. that seems normal because it's, it's how it's always been for the last 100 years. Um, mm-hmm. So it just seems like this is the, you know, the people say don't fight the Fed. You know, it's just like they just trust in the Fed, trust that they're making their decision. But really, when it comes down to it, we got to speak out. We got to act. You know, we got to be the, mm-hmm. we got to see the light as a, you know, it's it's up to us as an informed citizenry that we, you know they're not just gonna they're not just gonna take their hands off it as much as we'd like them to we gotta we gotta um rise up and and tell them you know we don't want this interaction from you anymore. we don't want this intervention right well that was a pretty good uh like hour and a half I think uh mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to end it
1: Okay, sounds good to me.